0: So this passage, it talks about God's promise, and that his promise is both good and a bad thing. It just depends on which side you're on, okay? So let's start with the bad. Turn to your neighbor and say this, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. You guys believe that? Okay, good. So now I'm going to be honest. All right. So, There's a, there seems to be a lot of indulgent parents these days, and I know I've been there, maybe some of you parents have also probably maybe succumbed to it as well, but this indulgent parenting, if you want to even call it parenting, it simply means this, that you allow your kids to do whatever they want, right? Indulgent parenting. For example, I'll use my daughter. Let's say, okay, let's say she's about to do something bad, right on the wall, put a penny in her mouth, yank on Stevie's tail, whatever. So what do I say? I'll always start off being respectful because I want to also, it's it's a teachable moment. I want to teach her respect and etiquette. So I'll say, Ada, please, sweetie, don't do that. And I'll smile. Don't do that. Maybe she says no. Then I become a little bit more emphatic. Ada, I said, don't do that. She still doesn't listen. So then I get short and to the point. Ada, stop that. But then she still doesn't listen. That's when the threats start coming out. If you don't stop that, you're going to be sorry. She still doesn't stop. So then you begin to play chicken. That's it. You're going to get punished. But as a parent, you never really want to punish your kid, right? So you're hoping that she'll she'll lose this little chicken dance, right? But then she still says no. Then you start getting desperate. Ada, why won't you stop that? But then she keeps going, and soon it turns into a negotiation. Ada, stop doing that. Daddy will give you candy. She still doesn't listen finally leads to surrender. Fine. Do whatever you want. Right? That's an extreme progression. And I think most, if not all of us, typically handle the situation a bit better than the examples I just gave. But also many cases, I think it's a familiar routine. I certainly hope it never gets to the point where we just allow our kids to draw on their siblings or walk across the street or eat dessert before their meals. And it's important to stop them before we indulge them because if we let things slide in their lives, what happens? It teaches them something. It teaches them that no doesn't really mean no. Right? Turn to your neighbor and say, no means no. <clears throat> now, tragically, because, kind of, because of that kind of parenting, the promise of not carrying through can also actually make our kids view God in a very similar way, as in God doesn't really have authority. God doesn't really—God's no doesn't really mean no. But that can't be further from truth because we know that when God makes his judgment, when God makes his threat— he keeps his promise to judge. So just from a few verses, we know that God's judgment was certain. Throughout chapter 6, we read that God said, my spirit will not abide in man forever. Then in verse 7, it says, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created. Then in verse 13, God explains to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Then in verse verse 17, God says that he was going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under heaven. Then in chapter 7, verse 4, God makes a clear that time was running out and he said that there are seven days from now I will send rain on the earth and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made and so there's these words of judgment and threat that we hear and when we hear it we think nah come on I'll have plenty of time I'll have let me graduate from college first you know what I I'm going to go get a job, okay? Or I'm going to get married. I'm going to get married or I'll have kids first or I'll, let me have time to save up. or I'll have time to save up and travel the world and check off my bucket list. I've got time. And God says, no, you don't. You don't. We don't know when life will end for us. We don't, want, we don't know when our flood comes. Look, there might not be some cataclysmic event that happens today or tomorrow, especially in the D.C. area. The, the only thing I've ever experienced was that earthquake we had a few years ago. Do you remember that? I remember that. I was with Pastor Josh in my office, and I felt my belly shake. <laughs> and that's the moment when I realized, A, this is an earthquake, and B, I need to go on a diet, right? <clears throat> but in terms of where we're at here in the DMV area, We're really not threatened with natural disaster, but that's that's not what God, I believe, is addressing here. He's asking us this. He's saying, you know what? You need to check your hearts. This is the key thing. God says, check your hearts. Because perhaps for some of us, most of us, perhaps even all of us, we're living in such a way that we think there will be no consequence to our spiritual actions, to our sin actions. We're living in such a way that we think, who cares if I am not the best human being right now, if I'm cold-hearted? If I'm being bitter or whatever towards him or her, I'll get through. This is how I get through life. Now, you see, everything we say or do or think that is contrary to the way that God wants us to think, the way that God wants us to do, the way that God wants us to say things, all these will bring certain consequences. Living bitterly will leave you to live a lonely life. Living with a loose tongue will result in no one ever trusting a single word that comes out of your mouth. Living promiscuously will leave you hollow, used, and broken, broken just to name a few. But maybe, maybe you're all thinking, Pastor David, we're not, I'm not like that. I'm actually a decent individual. I, I'm, 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 I'm monogamous. I'm optimistic. I'm positive. Maybe you think, I can control what I think and what I say and what I do. So what kind of judgment is there for me? Let me ask you this. This is a very simple question, but ask yourself this. How are you doing with the Lord right now? How are you doing with him? Ask yourself that. Like really, how are you in your union with Christ today? In your marriage with Christ today? Every day that we're not in his word, every day that we're not conversing with him through prayer, every day that we're not asking for his guidance and for his wisdom and for us to be filled with him is a day that pulls us away from him. Ask yourself, how are you doing today? Now, try not reading his word or praying for a long period of time. What do you think will happen? It probably won't affect the other aspects of your life. Your work, your professional, your career life will probably be fine. Your relationships with your friends, your peers, your spouse with your children, that might be fine as well. Maybe you might even pick up a new hobby and try out new things, but one thing that will be affected will be your spirit. You will no longer truly crave God and crave for the things of God. You will no longer see the world the way that God sees it. You will no longer hear God's voice. And even if he does speak to you, you won't be able to recognize it. You see, friends, there is a consequence for a lot of things. But the greatest risk we can take with our lives is pulling away from God. Pulling away from God. And drawing close to the world. Drawing close to the flesh. And if that happens, God says this. You pull away from me, there will be ramifications. You distance yourself from me. You choose to no longer communicate and immerse yourself in my word and in my promises and my truth. And if you don't believe that these promises become a reality in your life, if you just distance yourself and create this gap to go bigger and bigger and bigger, you know what? There will be deep consequences. The deeper you are in him, the more you realize he is the air we breathe. We need him. And you gotta ask yourself this, and you'll know where your spiritual at if you can say or can't say this. Can you say to yourself, without God, I am nothing? Can you honestly say that? And if you feel like you can't say that, well then you just you just checked your heart. Maybe he's not that big a deal in your life. There are consequences for how well or not well you're doing with God today. Therefore, God is constantly asking us, check your hearts. Turn to the neighbor and say, check your heart. <clears throat> Let me get back to text here. So what happened here? We read in verses 11, 12, 17, 19, and 21, 23. I'm going to read this, okay? 11, 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, by the way, my passage of the text is all the way into chapter 8. I only had our sister Kathy read a few verses okay, because of time. So, verse 11, 12, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Then in verse 17, 19, the flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Verse twenty one twenty three, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, Beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. Now, for a century or so, a lot of people, whether they're Christian or not, they actually assumed that the flood was true. Uh, They believed it was true because they believed that the Bible was the Bible and what the Bible said was good. But more and more people have become increasingly skeptical. Some claim that modern science says, you know what, we can debunk it. So they say the opposite truth. They say no global event like the flood ever occurred and that the Bible is just a book filled with myths and fairy tales. Without going too much into it, and if you want to have a deeper conversation, you can talk to me personally personally. But we know that there's geological evidence, okay? So one interesting evidence to indicate that the flood was true is this thing called this, rubble drift and ociferous fissures, okay? I don't even know what those words mean, so I'm not making it up. Now, this essentially means this, that throughout the world, large collection of animal bones have been discovered and unearthed into fissures or cracks all around the surfaces of the earth they found it in England they found it in France Spain Russia United States China everywhere and what's interesting is that these bones of animals like the elephants like hippopotamuses rhinoceroses deers horses pigs and all these other animals not whole skeletons but bones from bodies that have been clearly torn from each other have been found in these fissures all over the world with many of these bones of these animals that are normally not found together. Meaning this, like natural enemies. Okay? So a lion with a goat, their bones were found together. And do you know where they were found? On the tops of mountains and high hills together. What drove these animals both predator and prey, to high ground? Only to have them rolled and torn together in the rubble and deposited into these fissures or cracks on the earth. What led all these animals, thousands of bones, thousands of animals up on the hilltops and mountaintops, clearly trying to avoid something? But maybe geological evidence isn't good enough. Maybe we need testimonies accounts. Well, there are flood traditions all over the world. In fact, in 1872, a man named George Smith, he worked for the British Museum, and he translated an inscription (coughs) of a tablet from the ancient city of Nineveh, which was an Assyrian city. And the inscription described of an account very similar to that of the Genesis flood. But not only that, the same thing was discovered in the Babylonian account. In fact, the book called the Ark of Ararat, there was an account of over 213 different people groups with the same or with some story or legend of a huge flood that engulfed the entire world. And these accounts come from all over the world, from the Middle East, Africa, Pacific Islands, the Far East, Europe, Asia, Greece, North America, Central America, South America. And there are certain discrepancies. But here's what's interesting, okay, and listen to me here. 88% of all those nations, of all those countries, of all those people groups, 88% of them said a favored family was saved. A favored family was saved. Not only that, 70% said that the survival was due to a boat. 95% said the sole cause for the worldwide catastrophe was a flood. Sixty-six percent said that the disaster occurred because of man's wickedness. Sixty-seven percent of all the records, of all the accounts said a lot of animals were saved. So where did all these flood stories come from? How can the flood story reach the four corners of the earth and the world in a time when most wouldn't or couldn't venture anywhere outside their own country lines? Maybe, brothers and sisters, maybe there was a flood of epic biblical proportions. Maybe there was a small family that was saved. Maybe all the descendants of the earth would have come from eight people who have experienced and undoubtedly told their children the most craziest and awesome and earth-shaking event the world has ever known. Yes, there are certain cultural twists as it was passed down from generation to generation for thousands of of years. But the fact that so many people and so many nations and so many groups all around the world have this one particular story in common gives the biblical flood account a lot of validity. Can you not hear an amen? Yeah. Now, there are people who are counting on the story not being true. And it's not that they don't want to think that not that they don't want to think there was a catechismic flood. It's this. They don't want to think or believe that there was a God behind it. They don't want to believe that there was a God behind it and that the flood represented his judgment. Have you guys ever seen the movie Noah with Russell Crowe? Don't. I saved you like two hours of your life. (laughs) It's beyond stupid. Normally, if I ever pay for anything, like no matter how stupid it is, I'll sit because I paid for it. I walked out, um, and then I ended up watching it because I want to use it as like a sermon illustration way back when, a long time ago. Anyways, whatever, don't watch it. <clears throat> it's one of the most opposite things that come out of Hollywood, and that's saying a lot, right? Well, apparently, Hollywood views the flood account as this, as God's hatred towards man for abusing the environment, okay? In other words, This new religion that the movie was pushing on to the audience is the religion of radical environmentalism. In fact, the trees are so to be treasured, the environment is so treasured that Noah, in the movie, was willing to become a murderer to ensure that humanity ceases to exist as to not reproduce the mistakes from before. So at the end of the movie, the moral story essentially was this. Start recycling or God will annihilate you. Okay? Here's the truth. Are we supposed to take care of the country and this world and our environment? Absolutely. So if you're not recycling, recycle. Shame on you for not recycling. Okay? But the real account of Noah is aimed at the heart of man and their wickedness. Look, this world, our culture, us as a people, we're going deeper and deeper into sin as if there are no consequences. The main The mainstream public, they don't like that view. So they've thrown off the old Christianity, biblical Christianity, to find a new thing to believe. And like the movie, the delusion forces not on the value of our position before a heavenly father, but now it's about our position before Mother Earth. So that was God's promise to bring judgment. He says, it's coming. Don't think it's not. There's wickedness, there's evil, there's sin, and I hate it, and judgment's coming. But My second last point is the good news. God keeps his promise to save us. Can you say amen? amen. My cousin lives in Seattle, Seattle, Washington. And I know that John and Sue, who had gone for Thanksgiving week to take care of their grandchildren, to see their, their, um, their children, they're from there as well. And I've heard a lot of wonderful things, okay, from that city and state. But one thing always bothered me. I hear it rains all the time. It rains all the time. Now, many of the state Washingtonians, not D.C., they say it's not a big deal. It's really not a big deal. It's more of a drizzle. They always say use the word drizzle. It's always more of a drizzle than, like, any type of downpour of, of whatever we might think it was. But even still, let me tell you this. When it drizzles even here in Fairfax or northern Virginia for even a week, not even a week, half a week, I get pretty depressed don't you? I mean, I don't play outdoors, so it's not like I need the outdoors, right, or anything like that, but I just don't like the grayness. I don't like the wetness. I don't, I hate having my dog track in mud from the outside. I hate having to wear some sort of raincoat. I hate the squeak. I don't know, I'm being kind of anal here. I hate the squeak I get when I step into my car and slide my foot across my all-weather rubber mat. You know what I'm talking about? I know I'm starting to sound like a big baby here, but again, like I'm positive Seattle is beautiful with all its lush greenery, but maybe it's me. But if it rains for more than one day here, I get depressed. Well, Noah, he got something like that too, only for him it wasn't a week. In fact, it wasn't even 40 days, like a lot of people think. Here's the math: it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The flood continued on for 150 days, and then it took 150 days additional days for the waters to begin to recede, just enough for the ark to land on top of a mountain and for the mountaintops to become visible. Then the earth dried for 40 days, and that's when they sent out the raven and the dove. Noah waited seven days and sent the bird out again, and this time it arrived it came back returned with an olive leaf. Then Noah waited another seven days until the Lord allowed him to leave the ark. So how long was Noah in that ark? Over one year. Over one year in that ark. Can you imagine being afloat in the ocean for over a year? Even Navy sailors get some time off to walk on dry land and get rid of their sea legs. Not only only that, I'm sure the ark, as great of a build it was, was moaning and creaking under the stress of the sea, but Noah and his family, they rode out the storm. Now, I want you guys to think about how difficult their situation was, okay? Can you imagine hearing all the people around them shouting, crying, screaming for help, screaming for refuge, people dying everywhere, and then suddenly there was nothing but the sound of water, raging water. I bet millions of thoughts were going across Noah's mind. They were in a handmade boat, there was eight people and thousands of animals, and they didn't have a road map. They didn't have a road map. They didn't know how long this whole thing would last. They didn't know what God's plan was in, was, was in all this. But they did know this, that they too were sinful. They knew this, that they were sinful. And right now, just outside these ships' walls was God destroying sinners. That's scary. How much time before God would judge Noah and his family? A year, months, week, days? Maybe during storms, like the disciples cried out to Jesus, Noah cried out, Master, don't you care that we perish? Yes, Noah was a man of faith, but he was also a man. Maybe with all that was going on, with no end in sight, with only moans and groans, Noah, the great Noah, the one who walked with the Lord, struggled with his trust in God's promises. but people, we must know something about God because as certain as his judgment is, so is his promise to save. So where do we get that? Look at chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. Can you say hallelujah? So get this. God had repeatedly saved his people. So think of the parallels from this text in the Exodus account of the Israelites. The Israelites, they groaned in their slavery, right? And they they cried out for help. God heard them. He heard them, and, and get this, and he remembered. The Israelites were complaining, were groaning. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. And what happened? God heard them, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and says, and he was concerned about them. That was Exodus chapter 2. Same thing. God remembered Noah, and God remembered the Israelites. Not only that, how about Exodus 14, where we read that Moses, he stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a, water of, with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 says this. God made a wind blow over all the earth and the water subsided. Remember, God, He gave these words to Moses, who spoke it to the people of Israel just after their deliverance from Egypt. But why? To help them in their faith that they would rest assured for the rest of their days that God is faithful and that God's promise will always be kept. God's a promise keeper, you know that? And that God is Savior. Why are we reading this text today? Maybe because we too need to be reminded in the midst of our life's flood that the God who promised to save Noah and the Israelites also promised to save us. Remember, salvation isn't what you think it is, okay? We think our problems, here's the thing, our problems are typically circumstantial and so therefore our solution we think is changing the circumstances that we're in. We're sick, we need healing. I'm poor. I need money. I'm unemployed. I need a job. I'm depressed. I need happiness. I'm lonely. I need friends. But here's the promise of God according to this text He says this that the wickedness and that the evil and all the sin that runs rampant all around us, within us, all that will be accounted for and destroyed. I promise it, he says. That's his promise. You see, sin will not prevail. Sin will not prevail. But the promise within that promise is that there is a safe place, a Savior named Jesus. You see, if there was a flood today and those who are with sin would be punished, then no one here, including myself, would survive. For Romans said the wages of sin is death and all have fallen short of the glory of God, all of us. So what do we have to do? We need to enter the ark of salvation, and his name is Jesus who paid for the sins on on the cross because he obediently died on the cross as a blameless lamb. He was able to take on our sins and also take on the flood of God's wrath. He rose from the dead, proving that he was indeed God, but also proving that God was satisfied with his sacrifice. Look, we may not see the flood coming our way, but it's coming, and it'll be here sooner than later, sooner than we expect. The thing that saves you will not be a more successful this or a happier that. It won't be a fuller bank. It won't be a faster car. It won't be respect from your peers, nor will it be walls. Your walls plastered with degrees and accomplishments. God's promise of judgment is certain, but so is his promise of salvation, and that salvation cannot be found in a thing. It is found in a person. God is warning us, and he is commanding us, to drop whatever we're doing, turn away from every worldly allegiance, turn away from every type of idolatry that is hidden in our hearts, and put our whole faith in him through his son, Jesus Christ. And for those of you here who have a saving relationship with Christ, look upon the act Noah, once he, Noah did once he disembarked the ark. Can you imagine the elation, the celebrating that was happening there when he got off the ark? You know, when I traveled across the world, I backpacked and I hit over 26 countries in a span of one year. And I hate traveling. So what was I doing? I got robbed in Paris. I slept under a bridge in Tokyo because I couldn't find a place. I've almost gotten plenty of fights with racist drunks, and bigots who are constantly trying to pick fights with me. I've been thrown into an interrogation cell in New Zealand because they racially profiled me as a drug mule. I'm not making any of this stuff up. And I contracted dysentery in India where I lost over 45 pounds in a span of one and a half months. And when I touched down finally in JFK Airport, New York, I kissed that filthy ground. And I thank God for bringing back to my home, to my nation, to my dry land. So we think you can bet Noah kissed the ground. He probably start. He probably just forgot about the animals. Are running around with glee, breathing in and out that beautiful fresh air, and just really enjoying that sacred moment. But no, he didn't do that. He did something first. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What did Noah do? Noah first worshiped God. He first worshiped Him. So get this, people God remembered Him and He remembered God. What does worship signify for the believer? It represents sweet and complete total surrender and commitment to the Lord. That's why you're here today. You know that? That's why you do this with your family after dinner. When you read the Bible and pray and talk about the Lord, that's why you sing praises on your commute to work. You're worshiping. You're reminding yourself that God is God and that you are not. You're reminding yourself that you need him more and more each day. And guess what? That worship, that sacrifice, was a sweet, pleasing fragrance to the Lord, and the Lord accepted it. Brothers and sisters, worship God all the days of your life. Surrender to God all the days of your life. Commit yourself to his ways all the days of your life in Christ Jesus. Our worship to him will be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. You see, God has given Noah a new beginning. Not because of Noah's faithfulness to God, but because of God's faithfulness to Noah. That's what we call grace. We don't demand a new life, but we must be given one. And it's God who gives it to us. And he gives it to those whom he chooses and to those who humble themselves and say, God, I don't want to live my way anymore. I want to live the way you direct me. See, only in Christ Jesus can you have a new beginning. And get this, folks, whatever your life was like before and whatever your life is like right now, it is only God who can take you out of that flood and in the refuge of that ark of salvation give you a new beginning in your life. He can erase everything and give you a new beginning. For in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. So what's the bad news? The bad news, brothers and sisters, is this. God will bring judgment upon the wickedness and upon the evil and the sins of the world. And just know this, everyone, including myself, we are all tainted with that. But the goodness in that judgment is that he has given us his one and only son. Through him, we find refuge, we find salvation. He is our savior. Amen? Good news, bad news, Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. So to our fellow members, our brothers and (coughs) sisters, who acknowledge Christ as our Savior and Lord, How is your worshiping? You see, you've already disembarked from the ark, so to speak. The Lord God has already saved you through the ark of salvation—that is His Son Jesus. How are you responding to Him? How are you responding to Him? You know, it's interesting how this was a, this week was Thanksgiving. Are you living a life of gratitude? Worship, Or are you still expecting something else from him when he's already given you the greatest thing of all? Maybe that's what you need to check yourself. Maybe you need to open your heart and say, God, why aren't I worshiping you the way that I ought to? Maybe there is an idol. Maybe there is something in you That's warring for your affection. You know, sometimes we come here Sunday afternoons and we try to worship and the songs are great and it's gospel-centered and the worship is, and the music is good, but then it's just, we feel stifled. Why do you think that is? Because something is blocking us. Check your Check your worship. And to those of you who don't know Christ, the promise of God's judgment is real. It will not change. It has not changed. And the only way out, because we are all marred with this thing called sin, is to give it to the one who can cleanse us. And that's Jesus, who died and bled for us. He is our salvation. to him today give your life to him today and live for him today that is the only way you will go through rough patches in life because we can't avoid the difficulties and circumstances of life but through the moaning and groaning through the creaking of it all at the end you too will disembark find refuge find sweet peace and freedom in Christ. Okay? So let's go ahead and pray. The Lord is compelling you. The Lord is leading you in a direction to pray, in a way to pray. Whether you're as a believer, if you're not a believer, today is the day. Give your life to Him. Let's Go ahead and take a moment and pray.